Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 6. And then please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, now as we look into your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit illuminates your words, Father, not mine. Father, but your words. Father, help me be faithful to your scriptures. Help me be faithful to your inspired word. Father, in all this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we had a lot of rain this week, a lot of rain, and they say the drought is over, at least in Northern California. Reservoirs are filling, some are spilling over, and as I've said so many times, God controls the weather, not man, and even the Bible tells us that he brings rain on the just and the unjust, and he has brought rain to us. It's not because of something man did. It's not because of something man didn't. It is because God is God. And he decides when it rains, where it rains, for how long it rains, and how much it rains. And so we praise him for all of that. Well, in these recent rains, um, I got to thinking about what I wanted to to preach on this week. Um, And I'm going to preach about Noah. (laughs) It seemed fitting. But part of that is because of my recent Bible reading. I've been in Genesis the last couple of weeks, and as I was reading over the account of the great flood, there were new insights that I had gained, and I thought maybe I'd share some of them with you and and talk with you a little bit about Noah and the ark and the flood and, and what that means for us and how it points us towards the grace of God that ultimately is delivered in Christ. Well, everyone's familiar with at least some parts of, of Noah and the ark and the, and the great flood. There's Noah and the Ark toys you can buy online and in toy stores. There's Noah and the Ark storybooks for kids. There's Noah and the Ark cartoons. You can go on YouTube and see those. There's comedic takes on Noah and the Ark. Some comedians have, have done their, their things on it, even made some movies that dealt with the theme. And there's jokes about the great flood that are out there. Uh, for example, how many of you can tell me how many animals Moses took on the Ark? Zero. Noah took him on the ark, not Moses. But that's a joke that everybody gets, you know, they, they nail him with. And of course, there's the one-liners. You know, if Noah had only swatted those two flies. In 1976, there was a documentary called In Search of Noah's Ark. There's numerous films you can access on YouTube and about Noah and, and the ark. And in 2014, there was a movie entitled Noah that starred Russell Crowe. I'm not recommending that movie. In fact, they took some very bad poetic license with that one, I understand. I haven't seen it, just the things I heard about it tell me it's, it's made of whole cloth. It's not the biblical account. If you ever make it out to Williamstown, Kentucky, you can visit what's called the Ark Encounter. It's a theme park that features a life-size reconstruction of the Ark. And it's put together by the people who, have, who run Answers in Genesis. You may have heard of them. Ken Ham is the CEO of that. And it's a Christian apologetics ministry that deals with Genesis and the creation. And they just opened up this past year. And I understand it's really quite, a, quite an attraction out there. I'm certain here that everyone here can tell most of the story if someone were to ask you about Noah and the ark, about the great flood. But how many of us can not only tell the story, but share the significance 
of the account as well. So this morning, I want to take a look at the account of Noah. I want to look at the ark and the great flood, and I want us to look beyond the mere story of the event. I want us to grasp the significance it has for us and for our witness for Christ. So to do that, I want to do a little bit of background. I always try and do some background. Like, just like Ron, we try and set the context for what we're studying. And if we look in Genesis 5, we find that that's a, a, a chapter on genealogy, the genealogy from, from Adam all the way down to Noah. And we know that Noah was the ninth descendant coming from Adam. There was Adam and then Seth. Remember that Cain killed Abel and then Cain was banished. So they traced the line through Seth, his third son, followed by Enosh and then Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, then Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah. Now here's some trivia for you using those numbers provided in Genesis 5 because <clears throat> excuse me, it, it goes through and it, it talks about all of the years that they lived on earth. And we can take these years and we can plot out how many years were from the time Adam was created to the time of the flood. Genesis 5 is made up solely of Noah's genealogy. And if you do the math, you'll find that the great flood occurred 1,656 years after God created the earth and Adam. 1,656 years. If you look at the math, Adam and Seth lived long enough to see the birth of Lamech, Noah's father. Adam and Seth were still on the earth when Noah's father was born. Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, and Jared all lived long enough to see the birth of Noah. Well, this means that Seth's son saw Noah's birth. Methuselah, the man who lived the longest on earth, died the same year as the great flood. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whether he died in the flood or died before the flood. And you can see different commentators and they'll give you different viewpoints and things. But the reality is the man who lived the longest on earth died the same year the great flood occurred. Noah's name means rest. Lamech, Noah's father, thought that Noah would bring the world rest from the toil of the ground that was brought about by the curse. He thought they would bring rest. And this is to recall the promise of a deliverer given to Adam and Eve after the fall in the Garden of Eden. You remember what happened in Genesis 3, the Proto-Evangelium, where a redeemer is promised. So in a way, when we see this, Noah did become kind of a deliverer. It was through him that God preserved a remnant of mankind through the flood. Now, Enoch, the father of Methuselah, spent a relatively short 365 years on earth. He didn't die. God took him straight to heaven. And Hebrews 11.5 tells us, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And Jude 14 says it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is a prophecy 
concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus. Enoch believed God would be sending a redeemer. And this was a prophecy. This is the faith that is commended. This is what pleased God. Enoch walked with God. He had faith in God. He believed what God said. Enoch was one of two people up to today who never died. Do you know the name of the other one? The prophet Elijah. He also didn't die. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind in chariots. Revelation 11 speaks of two witnesses who will prophesy during the end times. Now the early church thought and they taught that the two will be Elijah and Enoch because both never died. But many think it'll be Elijah and Moses. Whoever they are, they're not identified in scripture and we can't be dogmatic about their identities. But now this takes us to Genesis 6. You have the background of, of what's going on. Let's look in Genesis 6 and follow along as I Read starting with verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but there are some points I would like to make. One of those is the sons of God and the daughters of man. Who were they? Well, some say that the sons of God were considered the fallen angels who came to earth and and cohabitated with, with women. Indeed, the sons of God is a term that's used for heavenly beings in Job 1.6. But these are not fallen angels in that term. And we know that angels don't marry, according to Mark 12.25, when Jesus was talking about that. Now, some say the sons of God were from the God-fearing line of Seth, while the daughters of men were from the sinful line of Cain. Well, why not just say so? Why not say the sons of God married, or the sons of Seth married the sons of Cain? Some say this is just a description of the fact that men and women married and reproduced. In Luke 3.38, in the genealogy of Jesus, Adam is called the son of God. And Adam means man, so daughters of man are, well, daughters of men. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that whatever the definition, there was some type of perverse relationship going on here. Perhaps those who followed God intermarried with those who did not. And they chose what was desirable in their eyes over against following the Lord. And the result was wickedness, which we are about to see. Now, when God says that man's days will be 120 years, a couple of meanings have been offered on that. Unlike all the men we just heard about, the days of hundreds of years of longevity would be over. People would not live beyond the year, beyond 120 years of age. That's one theory. But Abraham lived to the age of 175. Ishmael lived to be 137. Isaac was 180 years when he died. So I think a better interpretation is that God was declaring that humankind had 120 years left before it would be destroyed. He was giving a timetable there. 
Now this fits in with the timeline of the chapter. You see, God was exercising patience rather than wipe out mankind right then and right there. And 1 Peter 3.20 tells us that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, as to the Nephilim, some say that they were the offspring of angels and women, going back to the sons of God and the daughters of men. This would be a mixture of angel and human DNA. And angels don't reproduce. There's no record of angels marrying and angels giving birth and angels reproducing. And it says then that not only were there great men of renown before the flood, but also after the flood, which means either the angels came down and reproduced a second time, and there's no recorded part in Scripture that says that, or there's another explanation for who the Nephilim were. Well, what the Scripture notice, or noted, and, and, I, and I think this is correct, this then is just noting that there were great men of renown. They were, they were mighty warriors, they were men who were tall in stature and, and big men who made a name for themselves. They were in the ages of the patriarchs and, and, and then beyond. So that's what they were. They were given that name. But all of this forms a backdrop for what's going on. So we, we turn back to Genesis 6 and let's start with verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was ev only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made men on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This takes us to the first point. The sin of man demands judgment. The sin of man demands judgment. We're told that the sin of man was great on the earth. From one forbidden bite, one taste of a, a fruit that Adam and Eve were told not to taste, sin has overtaken God's most magnificent creation. This is beyond poor judgment. And it's beyond just mere disobedience. This is outright evil. This is what's going on at the time, outright evil. And remember from verse 2, the sons of God took as their wives any they chose. They saw that the daughters of God were attractive. So they took whoever they wanted. And in so doing, marriage, the great covenant instituted by God, there in the garden between Adam and Eve, a man and his wife has now been corrupted. It's now been perverted. And this mirrors what happened in the garden. See, Eve saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, just as the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. She took of its fruit and ate. And the men married whomever they chose. There was rebellion in the garden and there's rebellion going on here in the days of Noah. But the Bible tells us that the wickedness was great in the earth 
It wasn't limited to just one clan or, or one tribe. It wasn't limited to a geographic location just in one valley or on one hill. Wickedness was widespread. Remember how Adam hid when his eyes were opened to his nakedness? He had sinned and he hid from God when God was walking in the cool of the afternoon in the garden. There's no hiding here. They're not trying to hide their sin from God. They're openly displaying it. They're in total rebellion. The Bible says that not only was man's wickedness great, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now think about all the, all the words in there. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not some intentions. Every intention. This marks a, a consuming depravity. And it's the condition of mankind. In Job 14.4, Job says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. In Job 15.14, Eliphaz says, What is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? In Psalm 51.5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 9.3 that the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. In Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And you all know Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, all of this falls in the definition of total depravity. Total depravity. Now, this does not mean, total depravity does not mean that every man is as evil as he could possibly be. It doesn't mean when we talk about total depravity that you're going to go out and commit every possible sin. But it does mean that every person is completely evil from birth. All of us, every part of us was born evil, was born in sin. See, there is no good in man from birth. And sin has affected all of man's faculties. Everything that we do was couched in sin. Now see, this is the opposite of what the world claims. Listen to what the world says. They say, man is basically good. I think that, that people are good in their hearts. His intentions are forthright. Although occasionally he makes mistakes, but he means to do good things. So we look for the, the good in people. And all people are redeemable if we just give them a second chance. You know, they, they've, they've committed a crime or they've done something wrong, but we just give them a second chance and they're redeemable because they're, they're good inside. And of course, to call someone evil is to give them a label. You don't want to give someone a label and call them evil because, well, we all know that people live up to the labels that they're given. So we need to avoid this kind of judgmentalism. We don't call kids bad because, well, then they'll be bad. 
We don't want to call a criminal a criminal because, well, then he'll act like a criminal. So we want to be careful about the labels we give. And besides that, who is to say who's good and who's bad? I mean, really, who's, who's, who are you to say that someone is good and bad? Just because you think something is bad doesn't mean it is. Now, I could go on and on, but you get the picture of where the world stands on good and evil. The issue is not what man thinks. The issue is not what man declares to be good or bad, but what his creator declares to be good or bad. And God declared that man's wickedness was great and every intentions of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. If we deny man's inherent sinfulness, we also deny man's need for a savior. Think about that. If we deny man's inherent evilness, if we deny his inherent sinfulness, we deny his need for a savior. Total depravity is the T in TULIP. That's the acronym for the five points of Calvinism you may have heard about. TULIP stands for T, total depravity. U, for unconditional election. L, for limited atonement or particular atonement. I, for irresistible grace or efficacious call of the spirit. And P, perseverance of the saints or the security of the believer. T-U-L-I-P. Now, to be sure, we don't broadcast and call ourselves Calvinists here at Grace Bible Church. Rather, we teach the doctrines of grace. See, we hold to these views without all the labels attached to it. We're not Calvinistic or we don't teach, we don't preach Calvinism. We're not hyper-Calvinistic or preach hyper-Calvinism. We don't preach five-point Calvinism. We don't preach John Calvin. Neither do we preach John MacArthur or John Piper. We preach Christ through whom we receive grace. We preach the doctrines of grace. We preach Jesus Christ. And it is this grace that we will see demonstrated later in the text. The very same grace of Jesus Christ is demonstrated here in the text as we explore it. Well, verse 6 tells us that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Well, remember from Genesis 1, that starting with the third day, God declared that what he created was good, and it's a refrain you see. And God saw that it was good, and it was good, it was good. And then on Genesis, in Genesis 31, it says that after finishing his creation on the sixth day, with his masterpiece being the creation of man, he declared everything to be very good. On the sixth day, at the end of creation, God declared it very good. But now, everything was not very good. What does it mean the Lord was sorry? What does it mean he regretted? Well, this is a passage that presents a lot of difficulty for translators. This is, this is one of those really tough passages to, to deal with. If you read the ESV or the NASB or the NKJV, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, or the New King James Version, you'll see that it's translated as the Lord was sorry. If you're reading the Holman Christian Standard Bible or the New International Version, you'll see it's translated as the Lord regretted. 
The King James Version translated as, it repented the Lord. Sometimes there's no clear English equivalent of a thought in a different language. We just don't have a word for it. And sometimes in other languages, they can't translate our thoughts or some of our idioms. Many have come up with different ideas about what it means for God to be sorry. And I think the best explanation is that the writer is explaining to us in human terms, terms that we can understand something of this mysterious God who's revealed himself to us. What we do know is that God is never sorry for something he has done, for that would imply a sense of failure or imperfection. I'm sorry I made a mistake. I'm sorry I, I boo-booed over here. But God doesn't make mistakes. From Deuteronomy 32, we know that God is perfect. From Psalm 147, we know he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. From Jeremiah 32, we know that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So how could a God who is perfect, who knows everything and is able to do anything, make a mistake? Now, God didn't make any mistakes for which he should repent or which he should regret or for which he should be sorry or apologize. But God does feel grief and sorrow over what did become of his very good creation. Consider when something bad happens to someone you love especially if it's your child who in disobedience to you does something that causes him harm. You tell your child not to play with matches and he burns himself. You tell your child not to ride without a helmet and he falls and hits his head. You're sorry that it happened. You feel badly about it. You feel grief and, and regret over the circumstances. But it's nothing for which you should apologize when someone suffers a devastating loss or an illness, we send our regrets or we say we're sorry to hear what happened. It doesn't mean we're apologizing or we're taking responsibility for it. But nonetheless, we're sorry. God is grieved by sin. Our sin grieves him. He does not want his creation, the capstone of creation on the sixth day, the very good creation to be in sin because God is a holy God. And by deciding to eat the forbidden fruit, man determined to follow his own counsel instead of having faith in God for everything. See, God laid everything out for Adam and Eve. Set them aside to work in the garden, gave them dominion over the animals, gave them one command, don't eat from this tree Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Every other, every other tree you can eat from. Got all this food here for you. Don't eat from this one. And if man had just listened to God and just lived in faith and done what God said, then things would have been fine. He would have trusted God. But that's not what happened. Man trusted in himself. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to make the decisions instead of trusting God for these things. And look where it's gotten us. Look where this lack of faith and trust in God and his benevolence and what he's provided has gotten mankind. So we've got to this point, 1,656 years after creation, and God determines to hit the reset button. He will, in essence, start things over. 
But Genesis 6, 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, a quick note on here, when he says, I'm sorry that I have made them, that them refers back to the humans. It doesn't refer to the animals and the creeping things and the birds. He's not displeased with them. Indeed, he actually provided for their preservation in the ark, as we read in later chapters. But the curse extended to all of creation. For God to start over, it, it had to go. It had to start over. And this means that those that shared the space with man would be wiped out. Man is a land animal. Everything on the land is going to be wiped out. God's going to hit that reset button. Mankind had deserted its creator. And now it deserved judgment. So that's what God purposed to do. Now, things look very dark at this point. He's going to wipe out the earth. Every thought of the intentions of his heart is only evil continually. But then we see the light. And look with me at verse 8. Genesis 6, 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this leads to my second point. The first one is the sin of man demands judgment. The grace of God provides mercy. The grace of God provides mercy. Noah found favor with God. Now, you may recall from other readings that Moses found favor with God. We see that in Exodus 33, 17. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also described as having found favor with God in Luke 1.30. What does it mean to find favor with God? Well, it means to receive God's grace. You all know that grace is not something we merit. It's not something we earn. Grace is not something we can buy. You know that grace is a gift. It's not something that God owes us. It's free. God gives it to us with no strings attached. We don't pay for it. You see, otherwise it would be wages that were owed and payment for a duty we discharged. If grace wasn't a free gift, it could be an award for a performance of a contract. I did this, so God, you have to give me your grace now. Could be a reward for a special act of, or something that we did that was outstanding. God, I went and preached for you. You owe me grace now. God, I went and helped the poor. You owe me grace now. In short, if it wasn't a free gift, it would be something we deserved. Any other option means we deserve God's grace. Now, I want to ask you, how many times have you heard the word deserved misused? I encourage you, listen to the radio, listen to TV, and hear how many times you hear on the ads, on the political ads, the commercial something, this is something you deserve, something you all deserve. You deserve this. We hear talk of young adults deserving a free college education. People deserving free government handouts. People deserving to be treated the way they want to be treated. See, deserve, when you deserve it, it plays to your pride. You see, I'm 
I, I'm worthy of this. I deserve this. You owe this to me. Sometimes just because I exist, I'm therefore deserving of it because I'm breathing. But if man is beset by total depravity, how could he deserve anything good? How could you deserve anything special if you're beset by your sin? Grace, on the other hand, is always initiated by God. It is never initiated by man. It is initiated by God. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. James 1.17 tells us, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In 1 Peter 5.10, the Lord is referred to as the God of all grace. The God of all grace. It is grace that saves us. You know the verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. Noah received grace from God. God chose him out of the crowd. Now, some commentators suggest that this was because of Noah's righteousness. And we'll read about that in a moment. But we know differently. We know that apart from God, there is none who is righteous. I encourage you to read Psalm 14 and Romans 3, and you'll see that very clearly. There is no one righteous. So it wasn't because of something Noah did on his own that merited God's grace. Noah found favor. God had grace on Noah. But then let's look at these next two verses because they, they do give us some, some questions to ask. So in Genesis 6, 9, and 10, we read, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was a righteous man. But what was the basis of his righteousness? Was it something he did? Well, in a way, the book of Hebrews sheds some light that I think is helpful. So we're going to pick it up in, in Hebrews 11. And I'm going to read from verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's righteousness was based not on something he did. It was based on his faith in what God said and what God told him and what he knew about God. 
To be righteous is to obey God. And it was his faith that informed his actions. You don't obey something or someone you don't believe in. You don't obey someone or something you have no faith in. And just as James tells us that faith is demonstrated by our works, Noah demonstrated his faith. You know, when it comes to demonstrating faith and demonstrating what we're told, I, I learned something I found real interesting this week as I was studying, and something I hadn't really considered before. God tells us of his grace in numerous passages in the Bible. We read about God's grace in many places. And, and I've accepted it. God is a God of grace. Peter tells us he's a God of all grace. I accept that. But you know what? That's not all. See, just as God demonstrates his eternal power and divine nature in creation so that man can see, man can perceive them and perceive God, he also demonstrates his grace so that it can be seen. God not only tells us about his grace, he demonstrates it for us. He demonstrated it to Gideon in Judges 6. He demonstrated it to Samuel in 1 Samuel 2. He demonstrated it to the remnant of Israel in exile in Ezra 9. And in Matthew 5:45 it says he gives grace to the righteous and unrighteous alike. God demonstrates his grace for us. He does not leave man without evidence. Just like he doesn't leave us without evidence of who he is in his creation. He doesn't leave us without evidence of his grace. And here in Genesis 6, he is demonstrating his grace to Noah. And he's demonstrating his grace with Noah for our benefit. Note that in verse 9, we read that Noah was blameless in his generation. Now, this does not mean that Noah was sinless. I think there are some translations, and it may be the King James Version, that says Noah was perfect. He wasn't, he wasn't sinless. This is comparative. It says, Noah was compared to the world around him, was blameless. He wasn't doing all the things that everyone else was doing. And we know that Noah's not a sinless man, because later on we read about a big sin that Noah committed. We also read that Noah walked with God. Well, Enoch walked with God. And Enoch was spared death. Well, just like Enoch, Noah is spared death. God will spare him. And just as Enoch did, Noah preached about retribution and repentance. 2 Peter 2.5 describes Noah as a herald of righteousness. See, this is an act of faith. Enoch preached about Christ coming, about the day of the Lord. Noah, according to 2 Peter, was doing the same thing, preaching repentance. Judgment is coming to a world that was evil and wicked, whose thoughts of the intentions of his heart were only continually evil. How would Noah and Enoch before him know about such repentance enough to walk with God? How would they know about this? Well, remember that Adam was alive to see the birth of Noah's father, birth of Lamech. The man created directly by God. Now, 
only one of two people to have lived in the Garden of Eden. The other one was Eve, and we don't know anything about her, about beyond the, the garden. But here is one of the only two people who ever lived in the Garden of Eden, and he's alive for all these years. The one who knew better than anyone else the effect of sin firsthand. Remember that Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And the ground was cursed because of Adam's sin. And death came to the world because of him. Certainly he would have warned his descendants. He would have shared with them what it was like in the garden before sin. He would have shared with them all that he and Eve lost. And he would have warned them about the dangers of rebellion. And he would have told them about God's promised Redeemer. But here's what God said. The offspring of woman. Remember, Lamech named Noah to mean rest because he thought Noah might be the one to bring rest from the toil of labor caused by the curse. Lamech knew that God provided or would provide a redeemer. Well, what about you today? Men, how good are we at warning our descendants, our children? How good are we at warning our families about the dangers of sin? When it comes to sin, are we better at dissuading or are we better at demonstrating? Children are influenced by what they see in their parents. Oh, they're watching. They're watching everything we do. And if we demonstrate sin, they see our sin. And they learn. Listen to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 6. Starting with verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over. To possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And on your gates. This is a command to teach our children to teach them about God. Recall that Pastor Ron taught us out of Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The command has never changed. So I ask you, fathers, what are you doing to teach your children about the Lord? What are you doing? Now, to teach them you have to learn yourself. So I ask you, are you reading your Bibles? Better yet, are you studying your Bibles? 
Every year at the beginning of the year, we talk about Bible reading plans. And it's a great time to jump in and start reading. And it's not too late. In the back of Bible reading plans, pick one. Pick one and read it. Study, learn so that you can share. You can teach your children. You can share with your coworkers. You can show Christ to your family. But to do that, you have to know. Fathers, do you regularly attend church? Do you bring your family to church? Are you involved in a Bible study or a community group? And I ask you, if you can't answer yes to all of these, what's stopping you? Are you prepared to stand before God and give that excuse when asked why you didn't read his word, which he so graciously gave you? Oh, God, maybe there was something on TV that I'd rather watch. There was something more interesting than reading your Bible. Maybe you found more satisfaction in reading a novel or reading the newspaper or reading your email. Do you really want to stand before God and explain that that's why you didn't read his word? You couldn't find the time? As your pastor, I beg those of you who do not do so to please, please read your Bibles. Please read your Bibles. Let the Spirit of God speak to your hearts and illuminate his words. This is what Jesus promised us in John 16. And this is the promise we have in Romans 8 and Galatians 5. The Holy Spirit will teach us. I know that if you do so, you'll be blessed. And so will your family as they see. And you tell them and you show them what you've learned. Well, we see everything coming together then in, in Genesis 6, back in Genesis 6 and verses 11 through 22. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, its breadth 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. And finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The earth was corrupt and full of violence. All the earth, not just part of it. And God has declared to know his plan to destroy the earth by flood. But in so doing, he gives grace to Noah and tells Noah of his plan to spare him and his family. 
He gives Noah specific instructions to building an ark and taking inside the remnant of life that he will spare. And recall in verse 22, we read, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah, righteous before God because of his faith, obeyed God because of his faith. Now, next time we'll look more at this in the story of the flood as we see God's grace demonstrated to Noah as it works out. But we see here generations were lost in sin. And we see that generations will be saved. Well, let me conclude with some questions for you. What about you today? Do you consider yourself basically good? Do you figure to please God based on your own good intentions? You are, after all, a, a good father or a good mother. You're, after all, a good citizen. And you obey the laws. Well, most of them. Except that time you were late getting to the movies. Or late getting to church. Maybe you think you don't need a savior because you go to church. Well, at least you try to go to church. But most of the time. Or do you humbly recognize your own total depravity? And your need for a savior. You can't, you don't merit salvation because of your intentions. See, like the ancient people, you, me, everyone, we're all sinners. And it's easy to look down our noses at them for the evil that they were doing. Because they were, after all, immoral and violent. Remember, we read the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But that doesn't describe any of us, does it? That's, that's them. Or does it? Well, Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He also said, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Immorality and violence, it was in their hearts. It's in ours too. Except like Noah, we've been shown grace. Like Noah... God told us of his plan. We're here to read it. We can see it. And like Noah, all you have to do is believe. Not in your own works, but in the works of Jesus Christ. The people of the flood were going to pay the price for their sin, but Jesus paid yours on the cross. So I tell you today and every day, if you have faith in Jesus, rejoice, praise God. Rejoice that he saved you from the coming judgment because the judgment is coming. It is the judgment this world will receive. But it's the judgment from which you've been spared. Just as he promised Noah, he's promised us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read, we understand that your grace was extended to Noah, just as your grace is extended to us. Father, it is all you. It is not us. 
We are like the people of the world, wicked in our intentions, wicked in our thoughts. We know that all of our works are like filthy rags to you. All of our good works are mere filthy rags. But it is through Jesus Christ that we are redeemed. It is through Jesus Christ that you gave us grace. Through Jesus Christ that you have saved us. Just as you will save Noah from the flood, you save us. Just as you spared him from judgment, you spare us. Oh, Father, help us not to forget that today, tomorrow, this next week, throughout this year, Father, or forever. Let us always rejoice, Lord, that you have shown us grace, that you chose us. Father, let us not be afraid of sharing that. Father, let us recall the grace that was extended to Noah when we talk about the flood, when we talk about Noah and the ark. Father, help us to point to the larger story not that a man and his family was saved in a boat on the raging waters, but it was by your grace, your mercy, that a man and his family was spared in a boat on the raging water. Father, let us forever praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 